0: Uh, well, thanks very much, uh, Mary, and, and thank you to uh, President Higgins for inviting me to this wonderful uh, event. Uh, his, uh, his, his ceaseless intellectual exploration of these issues is really uh, admirable, and uh, as, as part of what he calls creating an ethical republic. What, what an amazing goal that is. We've, we've just got the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> <That's it>. So <laughs> very envious. <laughs> um, and, uh, okay, well, following Mariana is quite a task because she's a very effective speaker, but I'll do my best. Um, let me start with these three quotes, uh, which I think summarise what I want to talk about. Um, the first is, uh, we're moving from a cowboy economy based on limitless planes to a spaceman economy lived within a capsule, Kenneth Bolding. A very interesting economist, um, and um, and m- later on mystic, uh, but I think that that that's, that notion that the the, the earth is full, uh, to use Herman Daly's uh, idea, is 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 crucial. We've we've entered a new stage of human evolution, uh, and uh, which requires a different sort of of economy. Uh, <clears throat> the second quote. Uh, John Stuart Mill. It's some hardship to be born into the world and to find all nature's gifts previously engrossed. He's writing there about land uh, and the way in which monopoly ownership of land prevented other people owning it but now of course we're talking about the entire planet. We're talking about handing on uh, an effective uh, and non-dangerous planet to future generations. And then lastly Bruce Ackerman, uh, professor of uh, law and politics. Uh, we're all in the same boat, but some of us have much nicer cabins than others. I like that. Um, and, and this brings together, so these three, uh, the notion of um, a fundamental shift in, in the ecological basis of the economy, um, the, the question of future generations, and the question of current generations, and equality in, in the world today. Um, uh, the, the terms of sustainability and social inclusion uh, come into the title of this talk so I thought I'd better try and say what they are. Sustainability is a very difficult uh, idea to, to define but I like that of Paul Ekins that, that whatever is being considered has the capacity for continuance. Um, And traditionally in economics this is the focus here is on fiscal sustainability but I want to broaden that out immensely to talk about environmental sustainability and especially climate change. Social inclusion I'm going to take to mean both um, the pursuit of equity equality uh, but also solidarity which I, um, I define as feelings of sympathy and responsibility between people that promote mutual support. Um, So another way of putting all this is that we need a trust, uh, a just transition to a sustainable uh, economy. Um, And so this leads to rethinking economics, both uh, normatively and positively, if you want to use that that, uh, contrast. The normative shift for me, so the central normative shift is to question the central role of preferences, which Mariana has already uh, emphasized in her talk, um, and to counterpose the idea of common human needs as an alternative metric or a concept, if you like, of well-being. Um, uh, but then the second shift is uh, that we uh, have to envisage new roles for the state, amongst many other things here. I'm just not the only one. Um, including ecological management, recomposing consumption, and integrating eco-social policies. So that's the gist of it. The plan of the lecture is that I'll I'll look at, first of all, global dilemmas of what I'll call the Pluto scene. Then I'll say a few words about universal human needs and how that entails rethinking value. And then... uh, I, I distinguish uh, in this book. Perhaps I could hand this book round. Um, I distinguish here three meta strategies: um, eco-efficiency um, and green growth, if you like, um, and that's often contrasted with a third one: there, uh, post-growth or or degrowth. Uh, and um, that, that, that choice seemed so stark and difficult to reconcile for me that in the book I devise an, an, an intermediate transitional phase, if you like, recomposing consumption. So I want to say a few words about those. Um, so this is the, uh, this is the uh, Anthropocene, a tremendous increase in emissions um, in, in this last century. Uh, going up this extraordinarily steep way. Um, and then this is the heating of the earth which has resulted. Anything which is yellow or orange or red on this map indicates uh, a rise in temperature. And of course, one thing that stands out there is the extraordinary rise of temperatures in the Arctic, Ocean, in the Arctic area. But it's happening across. The across the world. Um, The general rise since the 19th century has been about one degree, perhaps 1.1 degrees, and the safe uh, rise it's reckoned now is 1.5 degrees. So we're already two-thirds of the way there. Um, But that's not all. We must we must then start thinking about who's contributing to these emissions. And um, this uh, very interesting diagram uh, shows how clearly unequal this contribution is, this, these responsibilities for the warming of the heating of the planet. Um, the top 10% of us accounting for about 50% of all uh, emissions, and the bottom 50% of the world accounting for, for 10%. Um, this I call, following a, a friend in in Finland, uh, the Plutocene, the Anthropocene, coupled with hyper Hyper inequality. This is, the, uh, in this diagram, it's as though everyone in the world is, is ranked from the richest to the poorest, irrespective of the country. Um, to, to get that picture. Um, but you have this sort of a double uh, injustice that the people's most responsible for global heating um, have on the whole been less affected so far. Uh, by the effects of climate change, which are even now uh, impacting on people. I'm not talking about that. I think one of the best reports to engage with these, these issues is the Brundtland Report, which came out 30 years ago. And we've just uh, published a, a book uh, revising that report, looking forward to the next 30 years, um, which I, I should have brought along with me. Um, That had what I still think is the best definition of sustainable development. Development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Uh, And it's still the most quoted definition. Um, It contains within it two concepts, needs and limits. And perhaps the best way of uh, illustrating this uh, is is the new work of Kate Roweth. Um, what's happening? Got it. Um, Kate Roweth's uh, donut or life belt, as I prefer to call it, um, which sees a, a safe and just space for humanity between an ecological ceiling and a social foundation. Um, I think this puts it very well. The ecological ceiling, she takes from the nine limits identified by the Stockholm Institute. And you will see that uh, climate change, which is at the top there, is only one of nine. Uh, There's also biodiversity loss, um, the effects on oceans and so forth. Um, I'll mainly be talking about climate change in what follows. Um, But you have these ceilings which uh, must not be transgressed uh, if we're uh, to leave the planet safe for future generations. But at the same time, recognizing that across the world there are millions, millions, billions of people uh, for whom basic uh, necessities are not met uh, and a whole set of uh, institutions are not present. And so she takes as the inner circle, the social foundation, um, the, uh, so some of the factors which enter into the SDGs, which has, have already been introduced. <clears throat> so the goal is to bring, the, the normative goal is to bring everyone in the world up to some decent minimum standard without exceeding the planetary limits. So this leads on to issues of rights and duties, which I'm not going to speak a lot about. But I'll just mention the duties here. Uh, well, the obligations. Um, there's a large philosophical discussion around this, but I think there's general agreement on on three things. The first is that we must stay within a planetary emissions ceiling. There's there's a, a stock of emissions uh, which must not be exceeded. And the second is that these emissions should be fairly allocated. So a notion of contract and converge is is there. And there seems to be general agreement on that. And the third condition is that uh, climate change is already working uh, and causing uh, many problems. And so there should be a fair funding of adaptation and compensation measures to deal with what's already happened and uh, and not only that but the allocation of these burdens should be just within countries as well as across the world uh, so there's a question of um, justice within nations now the uh, i suppose the next thing to say is that time's getting very short we've mentioned that uh, the ipcc thinks that we need to be on route to a major reduction in emissions by 2030, which is now 11 years away, just. Soon to be 10 years away. Um, And um, there is a a stock flow issue here, but the stock of the flow of um, carbon, CO2, into the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases is rising. Um, But we must then stop that flow. Uh, and then bring it down at a sort of dizzying rate in order to keep the total stock uh, within safe limits. And the later that's left, uh, the faster has to be the subsequent contraction. Um, And this is just one illustration of this from a recent report. Uh, The IPCC estimates that we've got about 420 billion tonnes of CO2 left to discharge into the atmosphere to give us a 66% chance of remaining within the 1.5 degree warming target. You see the sort of issues which are involved here, probabilities. Um, And that if this is divided between all the people on Earth and across the century, that's a personal allowance of 0.7 tonnes per person. And the present consumption in the U.K. is 12 tons per person. So there's such a colossal gap here between what's required and what exists. And, and Tim Jackson, in his um, submission to the Treasury a few weeks ago, said that the U.K.'s carbon budget would be exhausted by 2023 if this was the sort of target we're aiming for. So it's big issues and short time. Um, so that's the temporal issue, if you like. Then there's the spatial inequality dilemma. Uh, and this the basic fact that we need to have a, a major redistribution of resources across the world. If we simply inflate the economy in order to eliminate poverty, even at a low rate of poverty, um, then you would wreck the planet. If you simply... <laughs> take the, the existing distribution and project it forwards, um, you, you can't do that. So either some new forms of re- redistribution or a shift to an alternative economic pathway, or of course both, are required in order to deal with the, the inequality problem. I remember Michael Jacobs saying to me that he thought climate change was easy compared with global inequality, perhaps something we could discuss. Um, but the fact is that in this area of global inequality and the Pluto scene, um, the global responses are, are, are feeble. Um, it, in a sense, it ups the pressure, the need for social so- solidarity, but does it undermine the pressure? Now, Nick Stern, a professor uh, at the London School of Economics and the author of the famous report on the economics of climate change, whose work I I respect a great deal, writes at one point, there is little point in equitable access to a train wreck. Um, His point is, we're heading for a train wreck. Let's just sort out and decarbonize the planet as quickly as we can, and we'll worry about equity later. But I don't think that's that's good enough. It won't work in political terms, I think, uh, as well as uh, in, in, in justice terms. And yet, um, so global equity does need to come back on the international climate agenda. But here, I, I just sort of fizzle out with, uh, without much to say. It seems that it's very difficult to do. This is some work from the wonderful team at Leeds University, um, headed by Julia Steinberger another important contributor. Um, these are the uh, Kate Routh's donuts for three uh, countries. In the bottom corner is India, in the top corner is the EU, and in between is China. Um, they show that f- for India, there's virtually no exceeding of the planetary boundaries, um, but many people uh, fall short of the social foundation. In the EU, it's the opposite. The the basic social foundations are in place, uh, but there's tremendous overshoot uh, in in a variety of planetary boundaries. And China's somewhere in between. The goal is to get into the the top left-hand corner. Um, But I put this there just to show that the (coughs) the pathways that are going to be required are very different in these different parts of the world. There's one source of hope, which is Goldenberg's Corner, This um, plots, this graph plots uh, health, uh, life expectancy uh, against uh, emissions. Uh, And you see this asymptotic curve. But there are this interesting group of countries in the top left-hand corner, which is where we want to get, um, mainly Latin American or Caribbean countries, not entirely, uh, that have achieved high rates of um, of life expectancy um, at very low rates of emissions. So, um, it seems, perhaps there are some examples that we can point to, uh, to get around this. Okay, second point, uh, human need theory. I argue that recognizing these limits and obligations requires recognition of universal human needs. Uh, and that they trump consumer preferences. Henry at Oxford says it is not equitable to ask some people to surrender necessities so that other people can retain luxuries. The costs ought to be partitioned into costs that impinge upon necessities for the poor, and costs that only impinge upon luxuries for the wealthy. Um, but to do this, we need a theory of, of human need, uh, and it's surprisingly. It's uh, been avoided for, for a long time, but now, more and more people are discussing what basic human needs are. Um, if we look at up, my work, the work of Martha Nussbaum, <clears throat> and the work of eudaimonic psychology, which uh, opposes hedonic psychology, um, then you see three core elements the most general level which tend to be emphasized, participation or affiliation health or bodily integrity, and critical autonomy, practical reason. Uh, th- these, at the most general level, seem to be uh, core constituents of, of universal of needs. But need theory then goes on to, uh, to distinguish needs from need satisfiers. Needs satisfiers are always contextual and relative. So, human needs are universal, but the things that satisfy needs, a million and one of them, uh, will will vary according to context. Um, And we we can go on to uh, identify, however, certain components here, Uh, water, nutrition, shelter, and non-material components, security and childhood, significant primary relationships. I want to stress that these are not just material and then environmental components. These can be revised through time, but they, we can get agreement on them at a point in time. So my argument is, uh, and I don't want to spend long on this, that we need a theory of human need in order to get, understand sustainable and inclusive well-being. Because human needs contain five features which are crucial. First of all, they're universal. They apply to all people. Secondly, they're objective. They're they're not the same as happiness. The whole happiness thing is different. Um, They're not the same as misery or anxiety. Um, Thirdly, they're plural and non-substitutable. There's a need for education, a need for health, need for security in childhood, and different things affect them. You can't add them up into a single metric. Fourthly, uh, there's a notion of sustainability or sufficiency here. One can envisage um, satiability in needs, whereas preferences are by almost definition insatiable and endless. And fifthly, they're cross-generational. We can speak about the needs of future generations. Uh, plan to meet them. So I think they provide some firm foundations for thinking about sustainability. And then there are uh, social and institutional um, preconditions here. And this is where some of the SDGs come in in thinking about what is required uh, to enable these need-satisfiers to be met. Um, How am I doing for time? Okay, So I'll go on now to uh, equitable and sustainable well-being and the three-stage strategy. So I've mentioned already uh, green growth. The basic argument here is to decouple uh, production of all things uh, and emissions. Um, so that we can continue to grow, but emissions uh, decline rapidly. So, improving eco-efficiency is another way of putting that. Post-growth talks about reducing absolutely the levels of uh, consumer demand in the rich countries Um, and move to a steady-state economy, Um, and recomposing consumption talks about switching the patterns of consumption, again starting in the rich world, from high to low carbon and from luxuries to necessities. But all these need to be done in a fair way. um, And there are many ways in which they might not be. Now, the C1, the green growth, is by far the basic uh, core strategy embodied in the Paris Climate Conference. Uh, which uh, you you know about, um, and begins with nationally determined contributions which nations themselves decide. Problem is they don't add up to anywhere near enough at present. And the U.S. is pulling out. Um, when we turn to carbon mitigation, I think uh, Marianne has spoken a lot about this, so I won't go into much detail. But the key thing to note here is that uh, carbon pricing is almost always uh, regressive, and this is an unfortunate fact of life, almost. Um, the, but the, the key, the big three necessities, heating, food, and basic transport, are all high carbon, or nearly everywhere, um, and um, therefore, raising the price, however you do it, will impact more on low-income families than higher-income families which is unjust and can be counterproductive, as we saw with the Gilets jaunes protests in France. Um, the next point I make in the book is that compensation, the economist's argument, uh, compensate the losers, doesn't work. I can explain why, if, if you wish, uh, in, in discussion. So we need to move to integrated social economic investment programs and eco-social policies. Um, And I, one can envisage uh, these sorts of uh, programs. They're already emerging and uh, we've, we've, Marianne has mentioned them. The Green New Deal is a crucial one. Um, Public transport, decarbonizing food. I'd also mention social tariffs as a possible route. um, Charging families, households less for the initial units of water and energy uh, and then more as uh, they consume more. Um, and and the, the idea here is to, to achieve synergies between health and climate as the BMA uh, and other medical organisations argue. Um, also uh, just, just to say that the traditional welfare states are, are very important here. We don't want to um, undermine, undermine those. I think they enable resilience in the face of shocks. I was struck by the impact of Hurricane Katrina uh, in New uh, New Orleans and Cuba. In New Orleans, about uh, 1,800 people died. In Cuba, it's reported, two people died. If you multiply that figure by 10, there's a huge contrast. There was preparedness in in Cuba uh, and public services to deal with uh, these threats. The same hurricane affected both areas. Um, so, um, in a sense, I, I, don't want, I don't want to underestimate the role of green growth and all the policies that Mariana has talked about, which need to be developed hugely uh, at the present time. Uh, but I don't think it will be enough to get that colossal drop in emissions that we require. And the moral case means that consumer preferences and spending power still determine what is produced. So, I move on to the second area, which is to recompose consumption. We must begin to recompose consumption to reduce emissions by switching from high to low carbon goods and services. And here's an example, uh, for example, SUVs. And this comes from the World Bank of all places. The World Bank calculated that if 40 million SUVs in the USA were changed for ordinary cars, all people in the world could be provided with electricity uh, without more emissions. That that, that would permit that to be done. And just this week, another report has come out from the International Energy Authority saying that uh, between... 2010 and 2018, SUVs were the second largest contributor to global gar- carbon dioxide emissions, behind only the energy industry. Um, so, this is an example of um, a move, a, pr- a major shift in consumption preferences, which is having damaging consequences. And another reason for turning to uh, for consumption is this simple graph that when you look at consumption emissions, they exceed territorial emissions in the OECD countries on the left, and they are less than the territorial emissions in the rest of the world. There's a clear, there's been a massive outsourcing of production um, from the west to the east, if you like, and this distorts very much the picture of um, responsibility for global warming away from the west. So we need to pay attention to consumption-based emissions uh, rather than production emissions. Um, Now this leads to some interesting questions because you're starting to to critique here consumer demand. Consumer demand basically comprises, is determined by wants and incomes, money to back the wants. Um, There are policies that exist to redistribute incomes a a bit. But how do we think about wants? How do we distinguish needs, satisfiers, and luxuries in a democratic society? This is a big question. The only way I can think of is to bring together citizens and experts in in citizens' forums of various kinds and enable discussions to take place um, about what counts as a necessity, what counts as a luxury. and I've, I've, I'm trying to read as much as I can about the Citizens Forum in, in, in Ireland on um, abortion to see how this was uh, they operated. Um, I think there's two f- f- policies that could follow from this, dealing with private consumption and public consumption. On private consumption, I like the idea of a consumption corridor put forward by people in Geneva and Germany. Um, This is hammond Daly. If you have a limited total and you also have a minimum income, then that implies a maximum somewhere. Um, And so thinking about maximum consumption standards and income standards is well away. Um, I can't go into the details of how we calculated the figure of 150,000 pounds a year in Britain, um, but I can explain it in in the discussion. And we've also been undertaking research in London uh, with uh, focus groups to see whether there can be an agreement on how much is regarded as wealth and riches. Uh, and what we tend to find there is that there is, a, there is considerable agreement in different focus groups on what constitutes the wealthy and the affluent, the super-rich, of course, people always are aware of. But uh, uh, And um, I, could, I could provide some information on, on what that came up with. Uh, A second house was seen as an indication of wealth, Um, five or more holidays a year, a housekeeper, a personal trainer, things like this. (laughs) um, There was quite a bit of agreement on it. Um, So we we need some policies on personal consumption and um, I'm struck here by the existence of VAT. There's a big tax on consumption. Okay. I'll need about four more minutes. <laughs> um, and we could start thinking about a smart VAT, a varying VAT according to the items. And, and then there's a taxation on frequent flyers and so on and so forth. And then the, the other branch here is to think about public consumption, and um, we're recently producing uh, some work on universal basic services as a way of extending the idea of free provision for citizens beyond health and education to other areas, such as uh, free bus transport, for example, um, and uh, providing necessities in this way, Um, and uh, I think there are powerful arguments for that. I can't really talk about the third... um, challenges to endless growth and um, the post-growth discussion, I think I'm going to leave to one side because it's a huge area in its own right. Though one uh, transitional policy, which I think that can move in this direction, is certainly to reduce the working, working time, paid work time. Um, we learn that productivity can be taken out in terms of leisure or goods, income, let's uh, re- renew the, the challenge to reduce work time uh, as uh, as an eco-social policy for, uh, for for lower growth. So the conclusions in one sheet. Um, we must consider sustainability and justice and equity in the same box. We, we, We can't any longer have this uh, divorce between silos and departments which exist uh, in all countries. Um, So we need eco-social programs to tap synergies between well-being and sustainability. Secondly, we must recompose consumption as well as to decarbonize production. Um, We must pursue the idea of a carbon corridor and also the idea of universal basic services. Thirdly, this requires a new normative critique of preference theory. I think we must start thinking seriously about universal human needs uh, as a criteria of well-being. And fourthly, we're going to need a new type of state. In the last chapter of the book, I talk about a, a, a reflexive state. Uh, A state which uh, can move continually and adjust goals in the light of these incredibly pressing uh, demands. And I was struck here by the similarities with Greta Thunberg's uh, remarkable idea of uh, cathedral thinking. Um, Cathedral thinking. Acting now lay the foundations where where we may not know all the details about how to shape the ceiling. So... Oh, stop there. <laughs>